Please stand for the reading of today's New Testament lesson from the book of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks be to God indeed. And thank you, Andy Claybrook, for reading our lesson on this, the second Sunday of Easter. Uh, Casey, I too was a little lost in wonder, love, and praise uh, during our singing. And Mason, praise team, thank you so much for leading us. God uses you in a special way. Thank you, Casey, for leading us in our liturgy today. Well, Christ is risen. Let's try that again. Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. We are beginning, it's hard to believe, our final series in a year-long emphasis that we've been calling Walking with Jesus. And if you look closely at those logos, you can see what each subsection was about. You remember, if you look at the far left of the screen, we began last August with the prayer life of Jesus. And then we talked about, sequentially, the power of Jesus. And then during Advent, we thought about the, the prophecy of Jesus In the new year, in January and February, we talked about the preaching or the parables of Jesus, and then we just completed last Sunday our Lenten emphasis into Holy Week on the passion of Jesus. And so for the next several weeks, what we're going to be thinking together about in this last subsection of this discipleship series is the people of Jesus. And what I want us to do for a few weeks is to think for a few moments about the call stories of the New Testament, the people that Jesus called. And the theme of this particular subsection is going to be called kindred hearts. And I want to tell you just real quickly what the gist of this series, I think, is all about. It's simply this. What holds us together as the body of Christ What holds us together as the called of God is not, first of all, our ecclesial structure. It is not, first of all, our denominational polity. It isn't our institutional bureaucracy. More often, those things divide us. But what really unites us as the church is a common mission a common ministry. I think that missional relationships create kindred hearts. I know this because of my own experience. My my own experience in my call to ministry as a teenager was shaped at McKendry Church, downtown Nashville, by youth mission trips, where, where the church in the 70s decided to send out a busload of teenagers over over a number of summers to Native American reservations to engage in acts of loving service. And I have to tell you, it changed our hearts. 
When we're engaged, when we're employed in a common mission, there is a deep, deep bond that forms. Now, the text that Andy read for us a moment ago is Matthew 28. That's a call story, and we have a name for it. We call it the Great Commission. It takes place in the context of the Easter story, right? It's the last chapter. It takes place in the context of the empty tomb scene. The disciples of Jesus apparently believed the testimony of the women who were the first to the empty tomb, who were charged both by the angel and by Jesus to go tell the apostles that Jesus had been raised and that he would meet them in their familiar place in Galilee. And these apostles believed initially, not because what they saw, but because of what they heard. That's often the way it works for us, isn't it? That's why Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Well, the disciples had heard. And for some reason, they trusted Mary and Mary's witness. And in obedience, they went back to Galilee to the mountain, perhaps the same place where Jesus preached his sermon on the mount. And there Jesus appeared to them, just as he said. Verse 17 says, when the disciples saw him, they worshiped him but some doubted. Oh, no. That's a little disappointing, isn't it, in the Easter story? And I wonder when, Matthew, do we really need to know that? Well, apparently, we do. One of the things that I love about Matthew and really all the gospel writers is their candor about discipleship. They are very candid. They're very honest about faith. Faith, by nature, is not the same thing as being cocksure. Faith does not exempt faithful people from a season or a moment of doubt. One of the theologians that I studied in seminary, a German theologian by the name of Paul Tillich, once said, doubt is not the opposite of faith. It is actually an element of faith. Faith, by nature, is not a synonym for certainty. In fact, Hebrews 11 defines it like this. Faith is the assurance of things you hope for and the conviction of things that you cannot see. Richard Rohr, the Franciscan monk who's written so much about faith, says, and I quote, the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's control. Ooh, Again, I remember the excitement, the thrill, as a 19-year-old of being called into ministry, but I also remember after that experience a sense of hesitation in my spirit. I wondered for a time if God had picked the wrong guy. And it wasn't so much that I was doubting God. I was doubting me. I just wasn't sure I could actually do what God was calling me to do. And sometimes we still feel that feeling. You know the feeling. Simon Peter knew it. Matthew 14, there's a great story that recalls the story of the storm at sea. You remember this story? The disciples late one night are crossing over the Galilean lake 
Jesus was not with them, and they were terribly afraid. Some say that this maybe was actually an Easter story, a resurrection story out of context. Matthew 14, 24 says, the boat was battered by the waves, and the winds were against them. And suddenly, Jesus comes walking on the surf. The Scripture says that disciples thought at first that he was a ghost, that he was maybe a hallucination or an apparition. They were scared stiff. And Jesus says to them, take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. But Peter was hesitant. Peter wanted proof. And so he said to Jesus, Lord, if it is really you, bid me come out to you. And Jesus said, come on. And Peter gets out of the boat and walks on the white caps towards Jesus. And we know the interpretation. As long as Peter keeps his eyes on Jesus, he's okay. But when he gets distracted by the winds and the waves, kerplunk, down he goes. And that's how we usually interpret that text. You know, somebody's actually written a book called, If You Want to Walk on Water, Get Out of the Boat, right? And so that's part of what that means. Keep your eyes on Jesus. But let me offer another idea. Towards the end of the first century, when Matthew is writing his gospel in the early church, the symbol for the church became a storm-tossed boat. The winds and waves against them It's a cultural statement about the first century. For Matthew, the problem in this story was not just that Peter took his eyes off of Jesus. The problem was that Peter got out of the boat in the first place because it was his doubt and desire for proof that took him out of the nave. You see where this is going? When Jesus lifted Peter out of the waves, what did they do? Dance on the water or shimmy back to the shore? No, Jesus put Peter back into the boat. It's the symbol of the church. He put him back in the ship with the fellows, in the fellowship. And then Jesus climbed in with them. Somebody said, you can be a disciple without the church. I suppose that's true, and you can go to England without a boat, but it works better if you have a raft. He put him back in the ship. The problem sometimes with with wavering or wanting proof is we want to walk in the current, and Jesus says, "Hold, hold on, stay with the fellowship, and he puts him back in the boat and gets in with him, and all of a sudden the storm stills. And Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? That word for doubt in the Greek language in which the New Testament was originally written means to vacillate or to waver. And that's what Peter was doing. He was wavering between trust and doubt. He was vacillating between belief and the need for proof, and that is a part of the journey. You think of Thomas. You remember Thomas? John's gospel, chapter 20, says that Thomas wasn't there on that Easter evening when Jesus broke through the barricade and revealed himself in risen glory. Thomas was absent from church that day. You see what happens when you miss church? 
And when the others tried to tell him about their experience, Thomas got downright ugly. And he said, look, unless I see the nail holes, unless I can jab my hand into his side, there is no way I will ever believe what you all are saying. And the next week on Sunday, the first day of the week, Jesus showed up again. And this time, Thomas was there. And Jesus called his bluff. He said, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands, touch my side, stop wavering and believe. And Thomas gave the greatest confession of faith that's in the Bible, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, you believe because of what you've seen. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. Matthew and John include this bit about doubt so as to say to the church, it is not to angels and archangels that the mission is entrusted. It's to the worshiping, wavering community, people like us. The risen one to whom all authority has been given deputizes us, authorizes us, and engages us in the mission. And that's what holds us together. And here's the mission statement. Every church is trying to find their mission statement. Here it is. Jesus gave it to us. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's what holds the church together. It's the mission. There's a couple of things I want to say about this mission before we receive communion. The first thing is this. I want you to notice the extent of the mission, the scope of the mission. You see the word nations there? Italicized all nations. That word in the Greek is ethnos, E-T-H-N-O-S. You recognize the word ethnos as the word for ethnic or ethnicity. That is, people who share a common origin, people who share a common culture, a custom, a way of life. In the first century, Greek-speaking Jews often used the word ethnos to speak of people that were different from them, of non-Jewish people. In the Hebrew, it's goyim. You'd recognize the word goyim, which means outsiders or foreigners, nations or Gentiles. So in this scene, the risen Christ is actually extending the reach, the scope of the gospel beyond race, beyond Israel to Gentiles. Now, what you need to know is that this is an interesting shift because in Jesus' earthly ministry, he limited the mission at first to the Jews. In Matthew chapter 10, he sends out the 12 with these specific guidelines. Go nowhere among the goyim, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of Israel. So the initial mission in the earthly life of Jesus was to the core, to the synagogue people, 
But after the resurrection, after Christ is raised from the dead, the mission goes global. After Easter, the aim of the gospel is not simply for one race, one culture, one ethnic group. It's for all nations. The word all is critical, all people groups. Now, I for one think that we in the church need to be careful as Easter people that we do not limit the scope of the gospel. I love my country, but I've never wanted just to be an American church. I don't just want to be a European church. I I don't want us just to be a national church, an African church, or for that matter, a, a white church or a black church or a brown church. I'd even go so far, I don't think God is calling us simply to be a progressive church or a traditional church, or a centrist church, or whatever your flavor of the month church is. We're called to be an apostolic church. You say, that's great, but what does it mean? The word apostle, you know what it literally means? Apostolos, it means to be sent. This is a global movement for all ethnos, all nations, all ethnicities, all goyim, (laughs) all people groups. Besides, the truth is our core identity as human beings, it's not in our ethnicity. It's not in our nationality. That's important, but that's not our core. It's not in our socioeconomic status. It's not in our culture. It's not in our gender. It's in the baptismal bowl. You need some scripture? Galatians 3.28, in Christ Jesus, there isn't any Greek or Jew. There is no Hebrew or Goyim in Christ Jesus. There isn't any slave or free. There's no status. There isn't even any gender. There's no male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. I was reading a little commentary the other day about Barbara Brown Taylor, and she writes, and I quote, The problem is many of the people in need of saving are in churches, and at least part of what we need saving from is the idea that God sees the world exactly like I do. Now, this is just me, and I'm confessing this is probably not you, but I've got a bad habit sometimes in my life of remaking God in my own image rather than allowing God to remake me in his image. This thing is for all. Easter people, we went global. By the way, this was the plan from the beginning, wasn't it? As early as Genesis 12, when God commissioned Abram, what did he say? Go and I will make of you a great nation, and I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to all the ethnos of the earth. There's one other thing I want to say about this mission that holds us together. The context is global, 
But the content of the mission is very specific. It's Jesus' teaching. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded, and I will be with you even to the end of the age. Again, what I want you to notice is that this great commission is distinct from the earlier commission in Matthew 10. You say, how so? In the first commission, Jesus gives authority to the 12 to proclaim repentance, to cleanse, heal, and exercise. But after Easter, the risen Christ authorizes his disciples to teach. To teach what? Obedience. Obedience to every word that Jesus has commanded. The word disciple, by the way, in this text is not a noun. It's a verb. It's not just something you are. It's something you do. Disciples are called to disciple others by teaching. And this is what clergy need to know. That teaching is not simply about pontificating. It's not about theologizing. It's not just talking. It's modeling. Jesus didn't talk about love alone. He loved. Jesus didn't just talk about forgiveness. He forgave Jesus didn't just talk about grace. He became gracious. Jesus didn't just talk mercy. He was merciful. Jesus didn't just talk justice. He was just. I remember the old educational adage that we used to use when I was growing up, tell me and I forget, show me and I remember, involve me and I understand. It's in the engagement that we understand the presence of Jesus. Jesus himself was a rabbi. Jesus was a teacher. Isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't come on the earth as a legislator? He didn't come to lay down a new code of laws to replace the Mosaic law. He came as a teacher, as a God-authorized interpreter of the Torah to help us understand not just the letter of the law, but the root of the law, and he taught us to do it, to live it, to model it, to replicate it in ways that the world might actually see and understand and emulate. And it is as we are obedient to that mission that we see Jesus and that we hear him say, hey, I will be with you always And the gospel of Matthew ends exactly like it begins with Emmanuel, God with us. That's our mission. And here's the thing I want to say to you. You don't have to wear a stole to do it. I know some disciples today who do it with a stethoscope. I know some people who do it today with a chalkboard. I know some people who disciple others through a toolbox or through a guitar or a drum set. I know some people who do it through a gavel, through a badge, 
through a lectern, through a ledger. I know some people who do it through a soup kitchen. The point is this, whatever your day job is, your vocation is a witness. It's to be a missionary, to disciple others by the way that we live. And when you do, you will see Jesus and know his presence in the going and in the doing. Last word. A certain missionary I read about some time ago had come back to the United States on furlough. He was pretty burned out. He was desperate for rest. He had been serving abroad in a very difficult place in a difficult field. But before going back to his mission post, he decided to do a little shopping. He was looking for a globe of the world to take back to his mission post. And the salesperson in the store showed him a reasonably priced globe. And then she pointed to another globe with a light bulb inside and said, this one is a lot nicer. But she said about the illuminated globe, a lighted world will cost you more. A lighted world will cost you more. It was Leslie Newbegin, the great missionary bishop, who said, and I quote, mission is not a burden laid upon the church. It's a gift and a promise to the church that is faithful. The command of God, the commission of God arises from the gift Jesus reigns and all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. And when we understand that, we don't have to be told to let it be known. We can't stay silent. And you don't have to have a stole to do it. That's what holds us together. And that's what creates kindred hearts. May it be so. In you, in me, in us, in Jesus' name, amen.